Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome back to another episode of the Comic Girl. Field Report, the Comic Girl. Field Report, the Comic Girl. Believe, podcast family, that's why on your favorite podcast platform, we believe in the Comic Girl. Field Report, not the Comic Girl. Field Report, which is the name I intended. Some people like to categorize this intro as me shitting on my network, and I feel like I'm just offering some information that's crucial to any person who knows me and listening to the podcast and wondering why the misspelled version of Believe is in the title. So um, I think I'm just being helpful. I don't know what everyone else is talking about, and I, I, I bet my podcast is not at the place where everybody listens in sequential order. So they pick and so it's important to have this nonsense at top. So that's why this is the 189th time I've done it. Anyways, onto this week's great, great guest. Uh I would I would say rising star manager also do doing doing the work. What does the work mean on the management side? Um, going to actual shows and not being a douche. <laughs> and there's a lot to be said for that, I would think. Yeah, there is. There is. And the voice that you're hearing that is not mine is the voice of Derek Delcor, everybody. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Jake. I like I do appreciate it. This is really fun. I don't get asked to do a lot of podcasts, so I'm excited to just relish the opportunity chat mm-hmm. with you and you know see if i could enlighten the process for anybody who either thinks they're ready for a rep or wants to be a rep so i'm i'm, I'm here for you awesome because uh i mean that is one of the ever elusive mysteries in not only comedy but entertainment how do you get a manager well you have to have projects that is worth a manager's time well how do you do that well you probably need a manager yeah that's i mean it's the great chicken of the egg scenario of you know any entertainers sort of like professional beginnings right yeah i think for me people have asked me this question directly comics or you know anybody interested just in in terms of what i do or like what this may entail I think for me, you kind of have to think about it two ways. You kind of have to go with your gut. You really do have to see something in somebody and believe in them. But you're I tra- think you're talking you about you to- as a manager, right? I am thinking about me as a manager. I can't speak for anybody else. Right. But how I approach it, it's, you know, you really have to just kind of see somebody, see something in them, believe in them. But I think there's also a market component as well, where you really have to assess what this person looks like in terms of growth, right? I can have a million weirdos on my roster. And believe me, I love the weirdos. And you do weirdos have weirdos. Any money. What's that? You do have weirdos on your roster. I, I sure do. And I, I, I love them. Right. But I think they're weirdos that are willing to play ball. And I think they're weirdos that want to see some growth in themselves. You know, it's like, I always joke, like, Gigi Allen didn't sell a lot of records. You know, I feel like oh. you can have a punk rock sensibility in terms of like who you like and, and working with those people, sure. but they're also going to want to have to grow with you as well. Right. And I love a clown as much as I love a really polished club comic. 
And, you know, I try and diversify on my roster with all kinds of different performers. And I think for me, that's the most important thing in terms of seeing who has potential to be placed in different kinds of positions, because I think versatility really is the name of the game. But at the same time, you want people who really know who they are, what they're about, and really want to focus to start and then expand because I think as a performer people have to come to you for a very specific reason I think they have to kind of know you as this person right and then once they know you as this person then they can say oh can this person write let's say can this person act so I think as a performer the most important thing I think to attracting a rep is really have your voice as honed in and as clear as possible so they know who you are what you're about and where they can place you essentially right um cool let let us back up here i think i'm going to ask you like essentially a four-part question okay um tell first off tell the listeners like uh what what is your realm and domain of management and um you know your background a little bit and then I'm probably going to ask a lot of versions of the, this type of question for you. What do you specifically mean by grow, versatility, expand? Because that means a lot of different things to performers. And that also means sure. a lot of different things to reps, specifically managers and agents. And then also, I guess, as a, as a tail end to all of that, what is the difference between a manager and an agent? Okay. So yeah, then we can take it like one step at a time. So I'll start from the beginning. Yeah. Um, going out of college, I, I, my, my thesis was on James Bond. So I've always really loved <laughs> yeah. entertainment. I've always loved it, clearly. Um, uh-huh. I'm, I don't know if this is a video podcast, but I put two James Bond posters in my room. Yeah. Um, Diamonds are forever and Thunderball. And Thunderball right here. Yeah. 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 And I also always loved comedy. Like I was that kid who at 10 years old was watching tough crowd with Colin Quinn, like on my, my backroom TV. Right. And I was always just kind of fascinated by that world, the people in it. Um, I was also really lucky because I had some family friends who were involved in the comedy scene in New York. So I'm going to shout out to Anita Wise who, you know, old school New York comic. She had a couple appearances on Seinfeld. She came up with John Stewart and Chris Rock and, you know, I think that really sparked a lot of early love of it for me, but I never actually wanted to be a comedian. I'm just like, oh, this world is just fascinating. Right. And I always kind of held that in my back pocket and went to law school um, after college thinking, oh, I'm going to be an agent. Um, I feel like every agent's probably a lawyer. That just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Go to law school. Hated it. Um, oh, really? Realized why, 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 that why'd I you hate it, Derek? I know, right? God forbid, like, I feel like, you know, I feel like my intentions were good. Right. But um, I feel like law I think, school... realizing that I was never going to practice. Right. You're never going to practice. I also, I feel like law school makes you hate reading more than anything. Well, it does, but it also doesn't feel conducive to what you want to do. And I also realized the first was meant to be well. But at the same time, I realized that all of the big agencies have agency trainee programs that that's where they funnel you in through. It's like, Oh, I I guess I don't need this. Like why am I wasting tuition dollars when I could just be doing the thing? Right. But it also kind of gave me a little bit of remove where I'm like, okay, like maybe this isn't the move right now. 
I'm going to go into production and just get a nuts and bolts film education. Right. So I latched on with a small production company in New York that was doing a lot of like run and gun shoots, a lot of commercial branded content, things like that. Um, So like, for instance, you know, those ads where like, if you go to the doctor's office on TV in the doctor's office, like it's a doctor talking about like a pill, like a lot of that stuff was what we were doing at that company. Oh, really? And yeah. And it paid great. I mean, drug companies, pay but it's soul sucking work so sure. you know i still want to do production stuff and it's in in a capacity i want i started doing some work with ucb people because you know i take some classes at ucb getting to know those people and this is like peak broad city 2013 2014 right. everybody wants a web series you know my life in new york is so crazy and right. you know none of them went right i right. mean i produced a bunch none of them did anything but it was a great right. experience to just kind of be in that place in that time working with those people right and i'm like you know what okay maybe maybe i can do something with comedy at some point so i think realizing that i really wanted to move more into scripted world tv film i made the move to la you know me and my dad packed up my jeep drove across country from new york to la and uh luckily i had a friend who had a job for me here that was just a month long and he basically told me, if you like it, great, stay, you know. If you don't, just go back. No harm, no foul, right? Stayed, loved it. Been in L.A. ever since. And I think from there, I just was able to kind of work my way through sort of the world. I got lucky because that friend was a USC film grad. Um, he introduced me to a lot of his friends who in turn introduced me to their friends. So again, you kind of work your way through that system. And that eventually led me into sitcoms. Some Somebody was a PA on a multicam. And from there, I was able to kind of latch on to a couple of production teams in multicam world. And I really, really liked that. But I also realized at that point, I didn't really want to be a cowboy anymore going from ranch to ranch. So... Mm-hmm. I made the conscious decision in in 2020 to get a desk job. So in January of 2020, I get a job at the Osbrink Agency on the operation side. And by March, the world, something happens. You know, I don't know what something happened in March of 2020. And it's all hands on deck at that point. You know, we're trying to find toilet paper, let alone like figuring out where, where, where clients can actually like do their thing, you know? So a lot of what I'm doing is just kind of like keeping people informed, keeping people abreast of what the situation is, when their money's coming in, things like that. I still encourage to scout in the meantime, but scouting now took on a very different timber because everything was online. Everything was on your phone. Um, so it was interesting to just kind of get the lay of the land from that from a digital standpoint first rather than just hit hit because i feel like it a a whole new comedy economy sort of developed in that time where you had an entirely new kind of performer somebody who was almost exclusively digital and i feel like that skews a lot of perception in terms of what a rep may be looking for at that particular place in time so i used that opportunity to really just kind of get the lay of the land from not only the new digital space, but also kind of see what the traditional stand-up people were doing. And again, you had a lot of cool stuff kind of popping up. You had Clubhouse, you had Instagram, you had like TikTok is burgeoning now. So a lot of cool outlets to figure it out. I also think that that changes a lot in terms of how you perceive talent now. And being in an agency, they were all trying to figure out the same thing at the same time. So 
you know, I think that was definitely enlightening if for no other reason than it's like, okay, we're in a brave new world now. Like let's, let's figure this thing out. Um, so where does that bring you to like now? That's an interesting question because I think, you know, from, from Osbrink, it was a great education. And like, that's an agency that mostly focused on kid actors. So, you know, you're dealing with sage parents all day that, that toughs you up quick. And uh, I feel like you mean the, the the worst people. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna cast. Aspersions, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm you, kidding. You, you get yeah. you, you get it from all sides, and right. uh, everyone's kid is there, the best kid in the world. I don't know why my yeah, I know, and that's then I very quickly realized that, that that was not my my realm of expertise. Um, but from there, um, you know, it was a COVID cut in J- J- July of 2020. Um, in August, I pick up work with a prominent entertainment law firm. And luckily, I feel like it was a great experience because I think this particular lawyer is extremely well known in town, but also most of his clients are comedians. So I got to see comedy deals across the spectrum. Right. And it really helped to kind of learn what those deals look like, but also what's being negotiated for how it's being negotiated for right and you know it's everything from touring to film and tv and you you see the full run of it and i think i did two years there and it was a really enlightening two years and once the opportunity came to just kind of spread my wings a little bit i took it um i interviewed with the company i'm at now called cultivate entertainment and you know i'm building up the compartment from there and you just kind of answer my question, like, where where am I now? I think once the time came to actually be in a position to build a roster, it was a mix. It was going to shows. It was trying to see some new talent that I may not have seen before. But also knowing who I knew about from the last two years of scouring the Internet, um, just reaching out and seeing who was looking. Um, you know, you'd be surprised who had teams and who didn't. So I think just kind of like truly you would be surprised. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was kind of an enlightening experience in and of itself, because, you know, I think you, you have to have the conversation at the very least, you know, I think you, you talk to performers of all stripes and I think, like you said, they're all looking for something different in terms of who they want to represent them. I think some may want a bigger agency with more resources. Some may want a smaller management company with, you know, more personalized attention. And they think there's a spectrum that I think every performer like has to feel comfortable with in terms of the amount of attention they're getting, but also what they feel like the services that are being provided. Because I think there's a conception that if you're a performer, you just need to get wrapped in that state. Like, I don't believe that to be the case at all. I think you want the fit to be right because I think you ultimately, you want to grow with this person. I don't think you want to just take somebody on and then fire them six months in. So, you know, I'm happy to talk about that in terms of, you know, what performers can reasonably expect from reps and vice versa. But I think when it comes to that relationship, it, there should be a simpatico there because I feel like the manager, the manager performer relationship is one that should be a little more close than an agent i feel like your job description is a little more esoteric and i think as a result of that like that's kind of the one that should feel the most familial as opposed to an agent or a lawyer yeah who's about the bottom line 100 percent right 
Uh, I mean, I how I think of it in terms of the team. Let's say you're putting it together. Agents or brokers at the end of the day, I feel like that's really their job is to procure you work. Um, and depending on kind of where you are in their book, certain agents are going to work harder for you than others. I mean, if we just think about it in terms of numbers, that's why you may think you're ready for a big one. If a big one comes calling, maybe take a second to think about where you would be in that particular agent's book in terms of where you are on the priority list. You know, a lawyer's a little easier because I feel like the lawyer's just doing the deal at the end of the day. And and some lawyers are, are a little more hands-on than others, but I think that's a very transactional relationship. Like, uh, you know, one of my bosses used to say, I'm like Batman. You throw up the single, I, I will come in, I will beat up the bad guys, and I'll leave, you know? And I feel like that's that's a good way to just think about the, the lawyer relationship. But again, I think the lawyers are also an integral part of it because, again, like, they know the stuff, they're getting that deal done for you, and get a good one they're gonna fight tooth and nail to get you what you're worth um i feel like my job as a manager is interesting because i feel like i'm everything from shoulder to cry on to oh yeah cheerleader Uh to you know and you're a great cheerleader derek i try you know i mean i have my pom-poms ready to go sure i because i think at the end of the day you have to believe in your people you know yeah i think when it comes to that I, on my side especially it's like i i may take somebody on because i feel like there's monetary value there but i really like what that person does i feel like they do have something to add and right. i feel like in in a space comedy now that i feel like it can feel so oversaturated sure. feeling that you have somebody that's doing something special is really gratifying and you know you want to go out there and you want to Pump, pump your fist as hard as you can for that person. Beat on tables, whatever you need to do. And I feel like that's the that's my job in a lot of ways. It's kind of like if the comics are working down here with bookers and other comedians, to like make those connections in that space. I'm working up here to be able to say, okay, like who can I theoretically put you in front of that's going to see you want to also be a part of this and really fight for you on on that level from a producerial creative etc level right um you said uh initially growth versatility and expansion what does that mean for you as a comedy manager well i think you always have to have the conversation right um i think you have to meet your clients where they are because i'm not in the business of putting square pegs around holes i mean i feel like you know they're not going to listen to me anyway if i tell them (laughs) right 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 so at the same time, I think I, I want to be able to talk to them, like, realistically, where do you want to be? What do you want to do? And if you tell me, like, I want to be a superstar, like, great, let's try and make that happen. If you tell me, like, I just want to do stand-up and be a road dog, I think that's just as valid. Right. And I think you just have to have realistic expectations about where you feel you may be in the packing order. Because, again, there's there's no guarantee for any of this stuff, number one. But it's also the kind of thing where if you're really looking at it from a big picture standpoint, there's going to be a lot of hills and valleys along the way. And again, I feel like what the nice thing about comedy is if you find your niche, you can you can make it work. Whereas I feel like capital A actors are definitely not in that position because they're sort of at the mercy of everybody else, the casting directors, the producers, whoever. 
Right. So, you know, as long as you are doing the work, getting on stage, yeah, like making those connections on your end, like you're doing everything as a performer. And I think that to a certain extent is growth. Um, I feel like if you are always keeping your material fresh, I feel like that's growth. I feel like you, versatility now comes into play in the sense that you know what your voice is, you keep your material evolving. How does that parlay into something else, right? So if, let's say you're more personality driven. You you know you maybe not looking to be like the best crafter of a joke ever, but you must right. be a personality. Like, what's a good place for you to kind of exploit that? Mm-hmm. Let's try an unscripted series, right? Maybe an unscripted series about something you're really interested in is a good template for you to kind of show off who you are, what you're about, and something you really like. And from there, people will know you from that and maybe see you as something else. Like, you don't want to overextend yourself too quickly because, again, it's like everybody can say they write, act, produce, whatever. As long as you are somebody that people can see as a very specific thing in comedy, I think that's a good place to start because then you fill a niche and then people get to know you. And I think that's the most important thing because it's a perception game. Right. It is. It is. And that goes both ways. And that's honestly, it's, you know, I th- I've probably said this on the podcast before, but the rep, like, talent relationship is unlike any other relationship professionally I can think of in that, you know, you you are technically, like, kind of both going to bat for each other, and at the same time, you can fire each other at it in any time. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. It's a dance in a lot of ways. I mean... I'm a big wrestling fan. So I think for me, I always think of it in those terms in turn, you know, it's like we're both working very hard to not injure the other. And I, I appreciate that because again, I feel like a trust has to be developed. Right. I think there is something to be said of going the distance with somebody. And sometimes you get them as far as you can. And that's as far as, as far as it goes. And I think that happens with managers all across the spectrum, big timers who've been doing it forever people like me who are nation but at the same time really working hard doing what they can and that's one thing i always impress upon people whenever i'm having to talk with them like look if i'm approaching you here's what i can do and here's what i can't i try to make that as clear as i can and i allow them to make the decision i also make it very specific like okay i'm comedy focused in terms of the kind of comedy you want to do you let me know we can develop a strategy around that but i never try to pull the wool over anybody's eyes and i always try and be as forthright as i can be because again i think the better off you can start the relationship the smoother the sailing is going to be going into the future because again i think if everybody has unreasonable expectations from the start it's not necessarily going to be beneficial for either party Right. going forward so i think you know honesty is easily the best policy and you know you do become very friendly with your clients because depending on how closely you want to work with them that's just how the relationship develops and i think it, you kind of have that conversation as you go i mean there are some people who i talk to all the time there are some people who i rarely talk to but you know you just want to check in and make sure that you know they're there for you depending on the, the relationship they want to have so yeah i mean it's it is a very interesting relationship for sure, but I think it's of, of any job I've ever had, entertainment or otherwise, it's easily the most satisfying in terms right. of just being able to like actually help people. Like I feel like I'm in the service industry in a lot of ways. You right. know, you are 
you're, like, you're going to bat for people and you're trying to provide whatever that service is. It's chasing money. It's, yeah. you know, trying to set transportation up. It's, you know, trying right. to make sure that they got to their hotel or whatever. Right. But at the same time, you also kind of trust them to do their thing because again, like, I know this person has their setup in Boston or whatever. Right, so, right. you know, you kind of left that, you're kind of holding each other's hands in a lot of ways, which I think is, is interesting. And it's more personal than the agent of the lawyer relationship. Right. I.e. it's tough to have boundaries as a manager. And be, I mean, look, I, I tell them all, you call me if you need me, I may not get to you immediately, but I will get to you. And right. I think that's, as good a policy as I can provide because I feel like that's where I'm at in my career. Like I can't just snap my fingers and mm -hmm. get you in a writer's room yet. Right. I'd like right. to, right. but I also, that's probably a few years down the line. I feel like, you know, as I continue to make my connections, that's right. someplace I obviously want to build. Like, believe me, right. like I'm, I'm just as ambitious as a lot of my clients are. And right. that's part of, I think my, my cell is that, mm -hmm. I want to grow with you and right. I feel like I will be there in that capacity. Right. Right. Um, so it, to continue the idea of demystifying here and you said in the service industry, what, so like, what do you provide as service for, I mean, cause it is nebulous. I think in the minds of a lot of people as to like what a manager does. Yeah, I mean, I, I work in an interesting capacity because, like, my particular company has access to breakdowns, which is sort of the main sort of talent send out service. Right. So I'm able to submit for jobs as, as they open up. Unfortunately, not a lot of, you know, great stuff has been happening lately. Sure. But I feel like, you know, those opportunities are there when they come up. You know, being at a company also gives me, you know, access to upper level stuff that, you know, you as talent just may not be immediately available for in terms of being able to talk to producers, being able to talk to production companies and studios, just kind of having that access, I think helps because then I can pitch my clients to those people directly. And again, no guarantees, but at least now I can talk to somebody in the studio and say, hey, this person has a feature script. If you're looking for a good comedy script, I have something that I think would really work because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Um, that's something I really pride myself on because again, it's like you want to you want to fight for your talent, you want to get them out there. And again, I think going back to the perception game, if you can show some producer, or some studio head that your comic is cool, onto something that's kind of cutting edge and is doing something different maybe they take the chance on that. I mean, that's the dream. So I think what you can do from that standpoint, that's one service I can provide is, you know, providing that upper level sort of access for whenever my clients are ready for it. Right. Um, you know, it's also leveraging whatever connections I have to be able to kind of get you in. I, I realize that comics are always kind of working at their ground level with bookers and with other comics to get booked wherever that may be. But anything I can do to help on my end, at least to be able to send your tape somewhere. Right. That's something I can provide as well. Um, and again, I think it's just also that support of like, say something does come in for you, like a contract or an agreement that you may not be familiar with the fine print of like I can read a contract. So I think 
when it comes to knowing what is being negotiated for, how it's being negotiated for, if the deal may be good, may not be good. That's something I can speak to as well. Granted, not as an attorney, but as somebody who just knows how to read the contract. And again, if if it was substantial enough where we'd want to get an, an attorney involved, we we could. So I think it's it's again, it's kind of being a, in a lot of ways a facilitator for a lot of what talent wants and just doing the best you can with what you have. Because again, you know, it's it's nice that comics have their own relationships. And I think that can only help because, you know, the more people you know means the more people I can combine with your network and just kind of build it out from there to be able to get it to as many people as we theoretically can. So I feel like that's part of the the job that I think is really fun. Because again, it's you you if you're out there trying to really sell your people you want them to be seen by many other folks as possible right. knowing that like, okay, I got something really cool that you need to see. Right. Absolutely. Um, what do you, okay. So like how, how does one get a manager or agent like on the town? I know what you explained, what you look for when you're out and about at shows, but yeah. not every rep is as um on the ball and proactive as you yeah i mean i think that's honestly the million dollar question quite literally in a lot of cases um mm-hmm. i think as a comic you really just have to stay true to your voice i think if you, once you kind of find something that you really dig and and latch onto in terms of like this is how i want to present myself i think that's where you just kind of have to plant your flag and I truly do believe that when you're ready, those people will come to you. You know, I'm willing to take flyers because I'm relatively new with this. And I, I, I kind of like that discovery aspect. And like I said, I'm willing to grow with people. I think a more established agent or manager is probably sending their assistant out there and trusting their assistant's help. So I think it really is a matter of just continuing to like always do and create and create every opportunity for yourself to be seen because it's going to have, like you're going to generate buzz if somebody up there likes you as it were, you know what I mean? And I feel like, again, maybe that just does come down to, perception versus reality in a lot of ways but i think performers just have to be patient i think like i said maybe you're approached by an agent who's not right for you you know you shouldn't ever just go with somebody just because they're standing in front of you and making the offer like or one even of the things i will always in my conversations with is for like prospective clients i will tell them like look i don't want you to make a decision right now like Take a couple couple weeks, think about it. You know, I can come back to you, and you know, or we can just keep the conversation going. And when you're ready, we can we can have it. I never want talent to feel like they're being pressured into something if they don't want to do it or if it doesn't feel right. And I really do believe that the fit has to be there at least on the managerial side. Whereas I think with agents, I think because agents work in volume more often than not, it's just a matter of getting seen by somebody that is you know, at that particular moment, maybe not overwhelmed, like maybe they're in an intake period and maybe things just kind of break right on that side where it's like, okay, we'll take the shot. You know, I, I can't speak to the agent side as well because I wasn't at agencies for that long, but 
I think when it comes to that side, I think they do know what they're looking for, but also have very specific periods when they look that helps to kind of feed waves of people coming through. And, you know, I think as a performer, you do what you do to the best of your ability. Somebody will see you. I truly believe that. So, uh, yet another million dollar question. How do you get to the place where you are, quote unquote, seen? Where, like, it is the place to be seen with the potential of getting around? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I think there's a lot of ways to do it. I think the most important would probably be to just always be performing find people you like performing with again like you as a performer building your network to be able to just jump on as many shows as you can because again i think that perception help creates helps to create the idea that you're in demand you're funny you're doing stuff and if you're doing it in a specific niche like let's say you're doing it more like with the alt shows if you're doing it in the clown scene, if you're doing it at more of the traditional clubs, those are going to sort of be your people that you're going to be working with and building on. And I think being a part of a scene certainly helps because I think if somebody breaks in the scene, that means your profile is going to be lifted. But I also think that as a result of you just working with people, there there is going to be that perception that oh you're cool you're doing stuff you know and i think that's certainly something that i see and i'm cognizant of as somebody who kind of has their pulse on it but at the same time you want to be able to work in a way that's conducive to how you want to be seen as well you know i think if you're a specific kind of comic working in a very specific kind of milieu, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think you want to be on shows that aren't highlighting your strengths. Right. And I think that's an important thing for comics to think about in terms of, you know, there's cool alt show number one versus, you know, traditional stand-up show at traditional stand-up club here. Right. They're very different animals in a lot of ways. And right. I think, different types of audiences going along with different types of shows. You, I think knowing where your audience is, is going to be the biggest thing for you as a performer to really be able to focus and say, here's where I want to do my thing. And you're going to do your thing there. And I think once you've kind of mastered that, then you try and go to some other places and and see how your material works or doesn't. And I think that's part of the evolution process. You know, I think, good comics are able to really bend their material enough to an audience while still retaining who they are and their voice. Yeah. So I think that's, that's definitely the big one to consider. Right. So, but at the same time, you know, I get a lot of people that tell me that they're worried about being seen too early if they just move here or they're starting out. And I think that's like ludicrous. You know, like, 
it's it's it comes with the territory as an artist that you are for all intents and purposes at the outset even with some talent bad. you're not good you know and sure. that's fine it's fine like that's just part of it and no one unless they're an asshole like faults you for that um and also like there's there's such a large volume i mean even just like narrowing it down to comedy that someone being bad is not going to really like stay on my radar for all that long if at all because like there's so much of it you know um you would have to be so egregiously bad that it like it hurts me to my core for me to like ever remember it do you feel the same way oh yeah i agree well because i think i as a younger manager i really want to make my presence known as somebody who can be trusted and somebody who really cares about the stuff so that's why i try to go to a lot of shows i feel like you know you get to know these people and again i think that's where i think the magic really is that you get to know people they're not just telling jokes on a stage and you know I think any comic will realize that, you know, being funny is as much a part of it as anything else in terms of you networking, being somebody who's fun to work with around. That's what really helps get you around town. I think that's, you know, if you can develop a relationship with one person that's good, who then tells another person that you're good, you know, that's kind of where it starts. So if you're coming from wherever city you're coming from, some comedy in LA, you know, I'm not going to fault you for not necessarily quote unquote being good because everybody has to start somewhere right i think the most important thing for you is just develop those strong relationships as you continue to build your craft because those two things are working with each other if you're just somebody who's just going out just going to shows and you're not actively trying to get better you're probably going to wash out pretty quick because everybody's not going to realize like what good putting this person on my show even if even if they're a good hang like you can you know a good hang is only good for so long yeah and i really do believe that you know if you want to really build your career you're working on two fronts Uh, like one of my old bosses said and again video i know this is not a video podcast but on one hand would say show on the other hand would say business and then weigh them out that's really that's 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 what this is It's that very precarious knowledge that you have to be good at your craft and what you do, but you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel. Like if you want to, if that's your goal, love it. Be an artiste, be the the best damn you you can be, no matter what. If you want to make a career of this, you do have to balance certain business aspects that again, a lot of performers may not love. But that's the necessity of, of longevity. You really want to make sure that you don't flame out if this is something you really want to do. And you really want to have that sustained success, whatever that means to you, because that's what's going to keep you in the game. Right. Absolutely. Um, why don't, can you walk me through like the, like a, a recent journey of you signing one of your clients? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of a good example because they've weirdly all been a little different just in terms of how I've approached them. I think, you know, I've approached people the traditional way of like, I've seen them at a showcase and just really liked what they did. Mm -hmm. We had a cup of coffee and, you know, shook on it. 
there have been people I've, you know, pursued for months and, you know, only are just kind of getting started in terms of like the official thing. Right. I think I'll, I'll, I'll start with like an early case because again, like as I was building my book, I think I was really concerned with getting just good people. I feel like may have been getting slipping through the cracks. You know, I feel like right. that the LA is just so easy because the talent pool is so good and it's so big people right. are going to slip through the So I think right. that's what I initially thought of. So I emailed a particular person to say, just wanted to, you know, inquire about representation. Are you currently repped? If not, would you like to have a conversation? Right. They said, no, we set a date. Mm-hmm. And I think we just had the conversation. You know, I mm-hmm. talked about my background, a lot of what I talked about here, mm-hmm. um, reasonable expectations from me mm-hmm. saying, Hey, I'm new. I'm building this. I want you to really be a part of something that's right. on the ground floor. We're going right. to work our way up. Right. And that's not always appealing for people. Again, like I think some people may, they, they may think they're a superstar ready to burst and they, they want a big agency and, you know, they may say thanks, but no thanks. You know, they may also say that sounds amazing. Where do I sign? Right. You know? And I think that's why, it's always interesting because again, like sometimes you may want somebody that may not want you back. Sometimes right. they may want you, you may not be ready for them. I think right. it's kind of, it has to sort of be a balance. Like, uh-huh. like a, a lot of what I've been saying, I feel like you have to kind of meet each other in the middle at a certain place in time in everybody's career where it makes sense. So right. I, I also don't try to overstand myself either. Like I try to keep my roster fairly contained. Right. in terms of numbers because i don't want to be somebody that's just like saying i have all these people and then doing nothing with them i really actively want to work for my clients so right. i think by keeping it small as a manager you're probably in a better position to really know what these people want right. know what you can do for them in terms of what they've told you they want and then right. doing your best to execute because i right. feel like at the end of the day like that's all you really can do i feel yeah. like in this town everything's built around no everybody's looking for every excuse to not do something. So if you can give people a reason, yes, that's my bit. That's, that's my white whale. Like that is for me, you're looking for yes. And I think at the same time, you want your clients to feel like you are out there working for them. And again, it's not always saying every little, I'm not texting every time. Hey, I'm having this meeting. I have this meeting. You know, it's like, you want to make sure that you keep everybody abreast, but you also want to make sure that they know you're working. So again, that's part of it too. Right. You know, I think for like the longer term clients, like one said, okay, just sign with commercial. Let me see how commercial works out. I don't know if I need a manager just yet. Happy to continue the conversation. And we did like, we'd see each other at shows and we just talk about everything that's not representative related. You know, you get to know these people. And again, I think that also really helps with fit. It also helps with knowing if your goals are aligned. And again, I think as talent, I can't stress it enough. You want to make sure that you feel like you are getting the most out of that relationship, whatever that means to you. And again, that's asking questions. That's, you know, I give my number to everybody I, I'm talking to because, you know, I feel like if they ever have any questions, I'm an open book. I really don't try to hide anything from anybody in terms of what I can do or what's going on. Because again, like you want to be as transparent as possible. Absolutely. So I think when you, when you are having those initial conversations mm-hmm. you want to make sure it's all 
out there. And then, right. you know, you let, you let the client make the decision, you know, like I'll follow up. Like I may get a vibe in a meeting that this isn't the best fit, but I'll follow up anyway, just out of courtesy, but I also want them to make the decision themselves. Sure. And it's uh, it's nice that you are transparent because actually I think that's one of the sort of downsides. If you are maybe at the bottom of the totem pole at a the one of the big ones, sure, you're not you're not going to get transparency. They're going to give you the runaround, and you're you're going to wonder like, hey, what are they doing? And that actually brings me to like this question: What should comedians, actors, performers in comedy know about like hey this that you know i signed with this person i don't think they're doing a lot for me like what are those red flags that they should look out for they're like i should probably go somewhere else or drop them i think more than anything i try and be as communicative as i can be with my clients you know i think if your roster gets too big people may slip through the cracks and i also think that you know Part of like my early growing pains is like realizing, okay, if people may may not be a fit for you, you try and maybe just let them go. Um, I think you can't be afraid of that because again, I think if, if everybody's honest, everybody would will feel that. I think everybody will acknowledge that, okay, maybe this isn't working. Right. You know, be the best damn you you can be. I don't think this is the best fit for us in particular, but right. you know, I'm not gonna hold you hostage. I feel like the biggest red flag is probably just complete lack of communication. Like if they don't return your phone calls or if they don't, you know, it's two way street. Like, right. right. I know performers may be reticent to reach out to their reps for a multitude of reasons, but I think I appreciate it when my clients like actively want to build the bridge because again, like, you know, I'm working, doing whatever I am over the course of my day. Right you're not going to be able to talk to everybody all the time. Right. You just want to be as communicative as you reasonably can be. Right. In the sense of, I know I have something for this person. I'm going to let them know about it. But even then, just like a check-in just to say, hey, how's everything on your end? What are you thinking? Where's your head at? What, I think it's a, a rep good, that goes along. Yeah. What's absolutely. that? What's a good frequency of that? Like monthly, bi-weekly, weekly? It changes because, again, I think for me, it's it's totally dependent on client. Like some people want their hands held, some people don't. So I think you kind of establish those boundaries early, like as you're working with somebody and you can get a feel for it. I try and just be as as forthright as I can in terms of like from the beginning is like, how often do you do you want to talk? Like a lot of my clients are good with a month. Like I think a monthly is solid. But there are naturally just going to be people you work better with. Right. And on both sides, I think like you as, you know, as a performer, like if you're building your team out, you may have a better relationship with your agent. You may have a better relationship with your lawyer, you know, and there's always going to be a quarterback of the team. So you kind of acknowledge them wherever they are. Because again, like I'm, again, still very much new to this and I don't feel like I'm in quarterback position just yet. That's the goal. But, um, I also know that, you know, when your clients ask you a question, you want to give them answers as, as soon as you can. Because, again, I don't think you want them fretting. Like, your job is to take that onus off of them. And I really do feel like that's my responsibility. And, again, like, you know, this is my first year doing it. Like, I'm, I, I've made mistakes. I think every, every 
rep at some point has made these mistakes at some point, but you learn from them. And I think you try to, again, keep that communication open with the clients as best you can to make sure that any, any miscommunications are mitigated and you know what they want. I think at the end of the day, like that's the most important thing is something as simple as you're not putting them up for an acting job that is not what they're looking for. You know, if a person wants to be a road dog, they want to do any acting. Like if they don't want commercial work, don't put them up for commercial work. Like it can be something that simple. Um, But yeah, I think when it comes to the general sort of good boundaries being established, I think, yeah, you have the conversation. And again, like I feel like monthly is usually good because I think it allows you as, as rep to see what you've done for this person holistically. And then they can assess and maybe goals change things like that. They can always let me know. And again, just talking. I think that's the most important thing. Right. Because again, I feel like of, of all the members of the team, I'm the one who kind of has to facilitate more than the others. Right. Um, I think that's a lot of good things for people to digest. Especially yeah, I, know, I know I'm a chatty Cathy. So again, if I've been bloating, I apologize. No, you I haven't. Mean, just, no, 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 no. That's not what I was indicating. <laughs> Um, because I'm so passionate about this stuff. Yeah, Again, I can absolutely. talk about it all day. Like that's what I really right. love about just like working in the comedy space is that right. we all kind of speak this language. And yeah. you know, I have a lot of friends who are big film buffs, or like friends who are more sort of like on the writer side, like they're addicted to like writer Twitter. I'm sorry, X. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's sort of its own world. Right. right. Comedy exists in those but outside of those in a lot of ways. It's in, in many ways, like if we're doing a Venn diagram, it's sort of the middle. Because that's the beauty of working in the comedy space is that you kind of can do everything, but the double-edged sword is, you know, you may have agents telling their actor clients, oh, do UCB, do Groundlings, you know what I mean? Just to kind of get it on your resume. Sure. And it may not be something they're super-duper into, but now you just kind of have a space that's filled with actors doing comedy as opposed to comedic actors. So I think you really like now more than ever, I think it's really worthwhile to as a performer assess where you really want to be like comedy is an easy way in, but I think it's also not passionate about, I think like horror, horror fans see through it almost immediately. I feel like comedy fans in many ways are the same. Well, that's where I think specificity is important. I was thinking about this during when you were explaining all that is that some, some people, they come to you and they're like, I want to be a superstar. And it's like, okay, what does that mean? What do, what do you envision as a superstar? Like, you can say that to the day is long, but like, you if we want to actually make things happen, what does that exactly look like to you? Yeah, and again, I think it's funny just going around LA. Um, and again, like I have clients on both coasts, but LA is just kind of where I am and where I see stuff. Right. There are people like, oh, who's this cat? He's pretty good. And then I'll look, he has 250,000 followers on Instagram. And I'm just like, you know, the numbers don't tell the whole story in a lot of ways because I feel right. like you can exist in a bubble. But I think the important thing is like if you have that digital footprint, let's say, if you're bringing it on stage, right. it may not immediately translate. But that's not the worst thing. Like one right. of the things I like to tell my clients is you want your online presence to be as – of a piece 
to your stage presence as possible because you don't want people to feel like they're seeing you somewhere and then going to see you in the other place and it's a totally different thing right. you know i feel like as long as they're like as long as they are similar enough and people kind of know where you're coming from that helps just generate your fan base on both sides um you know i think that definition of being a superstar, like, what is that? Is that Sebastian Maniscalco? You know, Sebastian, he grinded for years, you know? And I, I, Sebastian's maybe not for me. My parents love him because he speaks to a very specific Everybody's experience. parents love Sebastian Maniscalco. And how can you not? I mean, I think he's a master of his craft in, in his very specific way, you know? Uh-huh. He's not going to necessarily appeal to maybe younger audiences or more old audiences, but that's that's not what he's looking to do, right? Yeah, on the flip side, like if you want more alternative crowds, uh-huh. you you know where your bread is buttered. You right. know exactly. I think you know who your people are, and I think that that goes a long way because I think a lot of people come to LA thinking they're going to be a star, right? That's that's the dream. Right. I think you have to manage expectations. When, what it really means for you because i think if we're talking about specificity where do you want to start where do you really want to establish yourself and where do you want to kind of go from there like what are the steps because i feel like if you've ever seen that meme of the guy like taking a long step across the staircase you don't want to be that guy i think you have to build because i think people do have to know you because i think there really is that danger if you don't of becoming a flash in the pan right you have a guy like bill burr who was grinding on the scene for years and breaks out in his 40s you know it's like that can happen but i think you also have to be in it for the long haul to be okay with that and i think now i think with the immediacy of social it's hard for a lot of younger performers especially to to just to see the long game and i think that's part of what you have to impress on as well as a performer and even as a rep because again like i know who i'm playing the long game with i know who's maybe more shorter term right and you kind of just have to be okay with that you can't really rush this because again comedy ages like milk what may be hot right now is not going to be hot in five years so you have to be adaptable in that way as well because again like what a superstar means might change in five years. So I think you just have to be in good enough positions to be able to work in capacities you like. And that that would make the most sense for, I think, any performer. Right. right. You want to do some comedy news, Derek? I sure do. <laughs> that's the most enthusiastic answer i've got I, I'm, I'm kind of a news junkie so I'm, yeah I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. Bad. okay so we're gonna jump around a little bit um we're gonna start off here season three of white lotus is coming up and series creator mike white has revealed the teensiest bit of details uh we already know that it's going to be set in asia and so mm-hmm. a bunch of white people are going to do dumb white people stuff in Asia. Um, that much is clear, but it will be um, bigger and crazier, which is, I mean, t- two words where, I mean, it makes it kind of a news item because the show itself is already like, in a lot of ways, crazy, twisted. That last season, there was things that were like, okay, 
We thought yeah. we saw everything. Nope. Um, I I I would love the idea if this is in Asia because I'm a big fan of like Hong Kong action sure. comedies, like the mm-hmm. Chan movies, Samuel Hong movies. I would I would love if there was some element of that in this season if that sure. was the, the the way they went to go because you know clearly violence was escalated last year so maybe right. if we kind of like play that and do this with it and turn it on its head a little bit right i can right, see right. mike white working in that milieu i really can right right but we're i mean it all has to be premised around like a white like so a, a branch of the white lotus so it could mm-hmm. only feasibly be in like tokyo um hong kong um where else bangkok sure and i think this one is in thailand so i think that could make sense yeah um it's good to see that it's going to get a bigger series order uh or i mean that's what i'm assuming especially because like it's shows have been shrinking and shrinking like if, Mm -hmm. if you know, uh, you're binging a favorite of series series of yours from decades past that find its way finds its way to Netflix or Hulu. It's almost like a culture shock to like, wait, there are 22 episodes to this season, and not seven. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Yeah. Well, because I think that's the interesting thing about sitcoms, because I feel like. In so many cases, you had sitcoms that weren't really fully formed when they first started and needed to grow into that. Like, even recently, right. like, you look at the first season of Parks and Rack, like, right. everybody tells you, like, you can kind of skip it because everybody's just kind of, like, weird and mean, and right. then they get all fuzzy and nice. But I also feel like a lot of what you see early informs the later stuff. So I like growth and progression of right. characters, and I think that's what television's great for. But I think you have a writer as good as Mike White. Mike White knows exactly what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. I feel like he's right. he's the most interesting man in show business in a lot of ways. And I feel like sure. kind of what he taps into right. culturally is really specific. And if anybody's able to do it, I think it's him. So nice. I don't think a bigger order would necessarily hurt a show like White Lotus. I think you just have to be right. crystal clear about what you want to say and how you want to say it. And moving right. your character sort of around the landscape in a right. way that makes sense. So sure. I totally trust him to do that. I'm totally on board. I mean, right. and you have a show like White Lotus that is one of the few, I think, certifiable huge hits in like modern TV. Right. Give right, him right. carte blanche. I love it. Yeah. I mean, well, that's what I think should be more noted is like, rather than it going on this se- upcoming season, successive seasons where the, the Anti has to be upped. It should be more about like, what does Mike want to say this season? I think that's the most important thing. And again, I think that that would be a good lesson to take from this is I think when it comes to creator driven fair, I think you right. have to kind of just be on the ride. Right. Um, and I know that HBO has always been synonymous with quality. And I don't think that stops anytime soon, especially when it comes to one of their premier shows. So I think it'll be fun. I'm look, I'm, I'm on board regardless. I mean, it it could be, I don't know who's in it. Like I think Natasha Rothwell is the only person who's been confirmed. And again, Natasha Rothwell comedy background, you know, I think you, you, you trust your performers to do well with the material as well, knowing it's good. Right. Right. We shall see. Okay, next news item. Uh, the trailer for Mean Girls 
the mean musical girls. movie version um has just arrived and it's interesting in that well mean girls was already a movie and then yeah. it became a, a hit musical what 20 years later 25 years later something About like that, that yeah yeah and then they decided to make it a movie with the musicals lead uh or one of the musicals leads uh renee rap who is now a bona fide star as a um i think she's like a bisexual icon before anything now a bisexual icon actress pop star right that makes i mean sense? that's that's how it goes in, in the modern entertainment economy you know uh-huh oh it, it's identity politics before everything potentially uh-huh um yeah and tina fey's in it uh in the same role that she was in the original mean girls i believe tim meadows is also and it's um there just feels like a weird if this makes sense nostalgia and canny valley here mm -hmm. so yeah. you feel like it's too similar to what was already presented because you know we were talking about this a little bit off air i mean yeah yeah the idea I mean, is to present this almost like contemporary greece right I feel like it kind of hits the nail on the head in that way right so yeah i mean with that why don't i don't know it's like then make it its own thing rather than like this thing that exists in its own space and is revered in its own like little universe um right yeah and I uh, I'm a very big proponent of not being exploited, ha not having your nostalgia exploited. Mm -hmm. uh, well, and I think this is an interesting case though, because again, mm -hmm. I feel like obviously like musicals have been remade recently, like West Side Story. Right. This is interesting because this is a remake of a Broadway show of a movie that was not a musical. So it's right. kind of like the DNA. I feel like in terms of how it's being sort of played with is sort of unique. And I feel like this could be right. a good test run because again, like mm. does this lead now to SpongeBob becoming like the SpongeBob right. musical becoming a movie right? with, with live action actors? Yeah. And that's where, you know, sometimes I worry because like while the Lego movie was good, it inevitably led to Battleship the movie, which was bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I don't want to sound like a reactionary conservative. I feel like so many people who are Republicans live in this space of being afraid of things that haven't happened yet. Sure. Uh, and they keep talking about things that haven't happened yet versus what is happening now. Uh, so I don't want to I don't want to sound like that. But uh, at the same time, I, the trailer looks looks pretty decent. And if it ends up being good and ends up being a box office hit. It's like, are, all right, so are we going to see Hamilton, the movie? Are we going to see um, a bunch of other Broadway plays that perhaps uh, they had an initial hesitation about, or Broadway musicals, uh, uh, initial hesitation about making into a movie, but now we're just going to get flooded with movie musicals. Um, and when maybe not every single one should be. Um, I don't know. I think if you talk to some purists, I feel like 
a couple years ago you had some musicals all come out at around the same time and none of them did particularly well right either particularly or commercially right and, oh, uh, i guess that even further they like have movie have a have a movie that like is either a hit or does fairly well then make it to a musical and then another movie i think that's what's crazy yeah 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 i mean and that's the feel like Hollywood's always going to be chasing that and i feel like we're still in ip dominant world wherever right. you know for whatever that's worth and right. i feel like they know they have something that they could stamp and say okay you know this this is uh -huh. the thing go see it yeah. um but again i think musicals are always kind of dead because again you they're either in or they're not on the film side. And I feel like you kind of always hope every every time one comes out, it's not going to single, oh, the death of the movie musical or whatever. Right. Because right. I think it's such a specific genre. And, you know, I think at least if you have an IP attached to it, that feels a little a little safer than just saying, this is a movie music. This is Into the Woods. This is Les Mis, whatever. Right, right, right. Um... Well, we'll have to see. I mean, that's along the same lines. Barbie did so well, and you know, um, Greta Gerwig pulled some real magic. But what does that mean for other toy-based IP adaptations going forward? Like, exactly. Yeah. Oh. I mean, if we're talking about like IP movies, I mean, the Legend of Zelda movie just got. An Right, so I think that right. could be interesting because now that the floodgates are open for Nintendo, let's say it's like right. you want to talk about IPs out the wazoo. I feel like that that could be sort of the new wave. Like right. that could almost be your new Marvel, and it culminates in Super Smash movie. And it's you know right. at that point, are we kind of right back where we started, just with a different right. thing? If right. we're really looking at you know the Marvel stuff, maybe not being on top like it was for the last decade so again i right. think that that art versus commerce argument is always going to be there right and it i feel always, like yeah, yeah. At least it's always it's always something to consider let's right. put it that way and that's where marvel may have to do a thing that i was kind of maybe hoping would happen because like you know their their box office and critical reception has sort of correlated in a downtrend over the last mm -hmm. couple of years, maybe they'll have to like give it to somebody very artsy, very experimental, and just like, all right, I mean, enough with the phases and can't like just make something cool. And but I feel uh, like they kind of tried that with Eternals and it didn't take. So, well, Eternals still plugs in a little bit. Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, imagine like David Lynch making a Marvel movie. Not that he would, but like, yeah, I mean, like how trippy that would be. And be, like, and that just the idea of that would be like, I guess I'll see that. Like, what the, the hell would that even be? You know? Because that's the thing. When they were kind of playing with House Money after Avengers, I think they tried to do that a little bit. Because again, like you had a Shane Black Marvel movie. Right, it felt like a Shane Black movie, and people hated it because of that. So it's like right. they kind of spun all of that as quickly as they could. Right. So you know, I think everybody wants to keep the gravy train moving, and I think uh -huh. you do what you feel like is the safe bet, especially now. I think you know where every studio is looking for something that is going to just bring in a return. 
whatever that means that's kind of all that's on anybody's mind i don't think we're really in an experimental phase right now unfortunately but right. we'll see in the next couple of years well we'll see how the marvels does this coming weekend we shall yeah i, I mean i've read some reviews worth it said it's pretty good so again i think it'll be as consistent a quality as most of the movies are so sure. we shall see we shall see which also all right so last news item with, with all of what we just said why why the hell are we remaking the longest yard again? It was a hit with yeah, Burt Reynolds was... and then they remade it with Adam Sandler and that was fine. And yeah. I don't I don't think the longest yard is a property that like every generation needs their version of. No. And again, I think it, like it was already like one, it was kind of like a I don't want to say a drama, but it was a sports movie to start in the seventies, and then right. you know, Sandler turns into a comedy. Like, what do you what do you do with it? Like, how, right. it's, is this an evergreen enough story that needs to be told every right. generation? I don't think so, personally. And again, like, I'm somebody who kind of laments the death of the sports movie in a lot of ways because right. I feel like it was such a staple of the American cinematic experience for so long. Sure. But because you have sports like baseball and American football that usually translate pretty well to movies, those aren't international sports. So they don't necessarily translate well to dollar signs abroad. So I get why they that sports movies kind of take a different tack now. Right. Um, this Although, one just seems odd. Just yeah, like you said, it's not particularly beloved. Right. I mean, it's beloved. I mean, I think The long, Longest Yard was kind of a hit back in its time, the original one. And then Sandler's like, People enjoyed, but it's not. It it felt I don't know, like fast food. It was, and and a lot of it felt, especially like if you had not watched the original, like none of it. Like what what are what are they doing? This doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I I don't know. We're just making an original football comedy movie. Is that so crazy? That's what and I yeah, and I'm trying to think of the last one, and nothing immediately comes to mind because, again, I think when we think of, sports of, movies now, they're always like not about sports in a lot of ways. It's, it's Uncut Gems, it's Moneyball, it's well, you know, Sandler it's kind did of, that basketball movie, yeah. And again, I think that's more about like it's Rocky, you know. I feel like right. the basketball wasn't necessarily the central thing, it was sort of there was a lot him. of basketball in the movie. Look, it's a sports movie. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's it's more about his journey of getting that one last shot, right? right. I think that that's palatable. I feel like you know, again, if if the goal now is like to just try and get these things out there to as many people on streaming services, like, yeah, I mean, you need to pick sports that are more global, like basketball. Um, yeah. you know, American football is not and baseball. Baseball Ameri- is uh, yeah. America certain- doesn't win all the time at the World Baseball Classic. It does not. But again, yeah. like if you're thinking in terms of like movie movie markets like Pan and Latin America, like where baseball's popular, yeah, that's I don't know how viable that is to a streaming service if they're looking at their numbers and saying, oh, Japan really wants this or you know, right. I, I I do love a good sports movie, I really do. Like I love baseball movies, grew up watching them. So again, it's like I I, I appreciate that they're at least trying to kind of go old school in that right. way. But but if it's about markets, like why aren't there more cricket movies? You know. Cricket's boring to watch. No, I've watched some cricket. Like, I feel like if if you're able to present it under the right circumstances, it uh-huh. can be exciting. But again, it's like it's 
one of my favorite stories of just like ever going to a sporting event. Like me and my dad went to a baseball game maybe a decade ago. And, you know, like we, I grew up playing, he grew up playing, but right. just watch it. You know, we're talking to some people and we get a, like a tap on our shoulder and we turn around. It's like, yeah, can we help you? And the people behind us said, yeah, we're from Sweden. We have no idea what's going on. Can you uh-huh. please explain this game to us? And like, we look at each other and like, we look at a couple people around us and like, yeah, we'll try. I mean, uh-huh. do our best. But uh-huh. you realize like baseball is such a difficult game to explain if you don't have the language for it. Oh, you sure. know, it's like, so wait, so he hit the ball. Like, why doesn't he get to stay on the base? I'm like, oh, okay. So like, basically it needs to like go into open field and then like right. he can keep the base if it, and that, you know, so it's like, you don't even realize cause you're in something. Absolutely. So again, I feel like that that translates in in very interesting ways when right. you have to actually explain it. Again, right. if you don't know the game, like right. you're not going to make a movie about it and try and sell it to an international market. Right. But cricket is like ten times more complicated. I sat down and, so and I and I learned like how it works, and it's like, oh, baseball got rid of a lot of this nonsense. Yeah, it lasts so long. Like, that's the thing. It's like, basically, one game can last for three days, from what I understand. Which is criminal. I, I think it's asking a lot. Yeah. I do. But again, I'm not somebody who grew up with it. So, again, maybe right. maybe I talk to the biggest cricket fan in the world, and he can get me in. You know, it's right. like, hockey's another one of those sports that I love. And I bring people to hockey games, they're in. But it's just, if you're not familiar with it, it just looks like chaos if you're watching it. Yeah, hockey's more fun to watch in person. Um, although like keeping track of the puck is always the, always the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Favorite. Sports I, that's comedy? why I tell people don't watch the puck, watch the play. Favorite sports comedy movie. Major league. I love yeah. it. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's a fun one. Yeah. Oh, where Charlie Sheen has gone after that. Huh? I was just thinking about like the Tiger Blood era a couple of weeks ago, and I'm thinking like, he went on a live insane. tour. He went on a live tour based off of him going crazy. I also think that was like the last time that we, as a culture, sort of collectively were just like obsessed with the celebrities, sort of like antics. I feel like before that it was like Britney in '07, right. and now it's like Taylor Swift for a very different reason, but just kind of like a celebrity meltdown was the thing that sort of just enraptured us for like two months. It was bizarre. Right. And only a decade ago. That's what's crazy to think about. Yeah. Only a decade ago. That is truly wild. (laughs) We live in a very different world now. We live in such a, such a different world. Well, I mean, you know, America elected a guy that sounded like that Tiger Blood era of Charlie Sheen, so... True. And again, I feel like that's that's my philosophy and why David Pumpkins became so popular is that that was like the last moment we were able to laugh collectively before everything just went insane. Uh-huh. Uh, I think, you know, you, I mean, I feel like things have been insane for a long time, you know. And it did, yeah, I mean, going, things are always in place. Yeah. Things are always in flux, but comedy will remain, you know, it will. That's kind of the uh, beauty of it. Again, like I think I always think back like during COVID, um, 
I was kind of on Clubhouse a lot thinking, okay, maybe this is the next thing. Who knows? Yeah. I remember Dane Cook had a, a room that he would operate where people could just ask him questions. And I think some, somebody asked him, like, what do you think the future of comedy is? And he's like, honestly, and again, this is Dane Cook saying this. Uh-huh. He said, it's probably going to go to the variety market where it's like almost like vaudeville, you right. know, where you can have a stand up. But then you can also maybe have like a musician and maybe like you have to curate the live event for people, sure. right. which I think makes sense. Yeah. Because if people are going to go in in their phones for something like characters or whatever, like they don't necessarily need to see that live, but you want to give people a reason to come back and watch something on stage. And I feel like there's a lot of credence to that. Right. And again, I think I don't take that for granted. I think comedy's back it's it's alive it's well i think you know it's in a lot of ways bigger than ever mm-hmm. and you know as much as i love to see the scene grow right. you want to make sure that there's enough out there for everybody and i think there is which is think right. is, is really cool and I, I again it's it's there's a reason it's so popular right now i right. feel like there really is like whatever makes you laugh you can find it out there and i love oh, that oh yeah yeah you can even if you're an incel unfortunately but you know it's like you can't discriminate right it's like if, if comedy's the tool i think mm-hmm. it's nice to know though that there's a lot of good being put out with comedy too you're getting right. a lot of different diverse voices and not even the, the checkboxy way you know it's like right right i don't like you haven't had a lot of like queer perspective like you have now and i think it's really cool to hear those because it's just different i've never heard a lot of those before. yeah we have so, so much I queer think- perspective how much? We have so much queer perspective that cis gay guys are like, oh, we're like bored. We're like basically straight now. And you that's know? crazy to think about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, know, you can find entire shows, you know, around whatever you feel like your identity is or whatever kind of jokes you want. Like, I feel like in a lot of ways, you should either just be kind of like black rooms or white rooms or like, alt rooms or traditional rooms now i feel like there's so much variety from the standpoint of how people are putting shows together at least on the indie level that if you're in a city that has any sort of comedy scene at all you will find what you're looking for and i think that's the best thing for any scene yeah agreed agreed um it's been lovely having you on today, Derek. It's been lovely being on. Seriously, yeah, yeah. I hope I hope what I was able to impart was informative. And, I believe you know, so. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm not a comedian myself. So again, like I leave the funny to the professionals. And right. again, I just try and be good, good business guy over here, at right. least as best as I can be. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm also happy to, you know, if you have any questions for me, feel free to reach out. Um, where you can know, they find I'm you? Derek uh-huh. What's that? Where I was gonna say, where where can they find you at? Um, yeah, my my Instagram is usually a good place to start at Derek Delcor, D E R E K D E L C O R E. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions you may have about anything comedy related. Because again, you know, I'm I still doing doing as best I can myself, just kind of getting to know the scene that sort of repopulates post COVID, and you know, really just kind of. Build, building that network so again i'm i'm always happy to help as best i can whatever that may mean and you know I, I i'm always looking for great shows so again if you have any recs feel free to like send those to me as well because i think i i'm i want to see as much stuff as i can and really promote as much 
good comedy as I can. So, you know, Amazing. feel free to utilize me as a resource. Absolutely. Um, would you perhaps want to shout out a show that you may have a hand in? There were a few. Um, so me and Jake actually stick or treat at yeah. York, and it was tons of fun. Yeah, we yeah. got, uh, it was continuing the tradition of the knitting factory in New York and we right. got comedians to essentially dress up as the comedians for Halloween and right. do, do some time as, as the comedian they dressed up as, which is a lot of fun. I'm right. also one of the producers of the Asbury park show at uh, the Hilo in, uh, at water village. Mm-hmm. And I'm also working on producing a monthly at the crow. So producing, Ooh. that's something I didn't even get into is, you know, right. getting into the producing aspect, which I think is a great resource right. for comics and managers, because I think it shows able to show off your talent, but also is able to, you know, get talent you want involved in right. your circle to right. do stuff. And I think, you know, if there's ever any questions or back on to talk about that kind of aspect, I'm happy to, because I think that's, that's a really fun avenue to, to explore. Right. What's the monthly at the crow? Um, as of right now, it's called jokes in the attic. Uh, we just did our first one on this past Sunday, uh, November 5th. And because it's it was literally in an attic, literally there, yeah. it is in the roof of the building and it's, yeah. it was a lot of fun. We packed it out and you know, the idea is that you never know what you're going to find in the attic. So, you know, right. you're going to have some, some comedians, maybe some, some digital folks, maybe a musician. I don't know. So that's still very much a work in progress and we'll see how it goes from there. But, uh, but I'm excited because again, I think just kind of learning how to produce, it's very much its own skill set, And, you know, it's as an, as a manager, I think a nice one to have my back pocket. So. Right. Right. Amazing. Uh, I'm Jake Kruger. I created the comedy bureau. You can find the comedy bureau at the bureau.com at the comedy bureau across socials, which is mainly just Instagram and threads and, I may retweet something on Twitter. It's still Twitter.com, Derek. <laughs> it sure uh, is. Yeah. Me, damn it. Yeah, you can find uh, me on Instagram at Not the Supermarket. Uh, so many great causes of support at this time. I'd ask that you please support those. Uh, actors are still on strike, <laughs> which is crazy to say. Um, but if you have money and generosity left over, please support the Comedy Bureau to keep it going. And do you have anything to say as we sign off here, Jared? Oh, he, good? He's, he's, he's signaling that we're, are we good? I was asking, do you have anything to say as we sign off here? Oh, no, honestly, yeah. I just honestly, um, thank you to everybody who's getting an opportunity up to this point. You know, yeah. uh, a lot of great folks that I've worked with in many different capacities and, you know, uh it's been interesting so far looking forward to at least continuing down this path wherever it may lead because that's again the beauty of comedy is you never really know where it can take you and again just like working with as many great people as i have i feel very thankful very lucky and um looking forward to many more amazing 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 live comedy as we've talked about this entire time is still happening and it's a pretty stevens to say enjoy it the Comedy Bureau Field Report is recorded, produced, and edited by Jake Kroger. Music by Brian Grineo. Artwork by Andrew Delman and KT. And part of the Believe Podcast family.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.